A Continental 737 is taking off out of Denver when something unexpected happens. What caused this flight to end up in a ditch at DIA? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Hi. We, we don't have anybody to thank yet. No, there's nobody to thank for anything. But thank you anyways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back. Welcome back. This is the Disaster Podcast. That's right. <laughs> I would also say it's the Fatigue Podcast, but we haven't covered fatigue in a while. No, we haven't. I wish I could say we were changing that, but we're not. Yeah. That's okay. We will eventually get around. I could theoretically bring it up today. I will sort of bring it up I'm not. later on. It's not an important thing. Okay, good. Theoretically, that's different. Well, well different. I'm Talk fatigued. Broke. That's different. And broken <laughs> and hangry and sleepy. So I'm sorry I'm not the, the wealth of levity I usually am. I'm a little down for the count today. That's okay. You have notes. You just follow the notes. You'll you be all right. Follow the Was I funny in the notes? I don't remember. I have no idea. <laughs> I, can I, have... Make, I can make up for the funny. Don't worry about That's it. That's right. Check out the newsletter. Newsletter should have come out actually this past week. Will okay, it? Good job. I don't know. Cool. It's like this fun thing of like, is Miranda going to get her done before the end of the month? <laughs> I get that. I'm going to tell you, probably not. But I'm going to CMEA this weekend, and I'm bringing my computer with me for cool. when I have downtime, I can work on stuff. You're bringing your Switch, right? Yeah, but podcast and work stuff I know. outrank yeah. the Switch. Stuff. I know. Because I can play Minecraft for hours and not do any work, <laughs> which is a problem, because I have work I have to do. So I do have one note for today's episode. You are going to have a question, and it is the same question Nick and I had watching the entire Air Disasters episode. Could you please not ask it till the very end? Thank you. But I don't know what the question Good. is. Good. You'll figure it out, probably. I'll try. And At least... It's our question. If you, I, it depends, I guess, on your level of knowledge of a certain airport. But okay, I know what happened here. <laughs> Thanks. You yes. can't. You can't. I know what happened here. Yes. So if depends on your knowledge of Denver International Airport, I guess the current Denver International Airport. Yes. I don't know. We'll I, get into. I that. know a little bit about Denver. I don't know like a ridiculous amount. I'm not say Nick. So That's it fair. looks slightly like a swastika. I yeah. do know that. Good. That is relevant information, actually. Not okay. not the swastika, but anyway. Sorry for the run-on intro. Ramblies. What are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Continental Flight 1404. Thank you to everyone and their mother for recommending this. This one. It, I'm amazed it took this long for us to get around to this one. This was recommended by Tiernan, Helen, and my Uncle Lenny, slash Uncle Leo, depending on who you talk to. Yeah. So thank you to all those people. This episode, I'm amazed it took so long for it to come around because this is the only major accident to ever occur at the New Denver International Airport. I remember when this happened. Of course you do. I remember the night this happened. I remember calling Brendan on the phone and being like, you won't believe what just happened. <laughs> I remember all of that. And that being said, of course, because this one is local, this is at an airport that I am more than acutely familiar with. I am amazed that it took so long to come around because I literally work there every day. Good for you. And this is the only accident we can ever really talk about on this podcast at that airport. Not to say there haven't been other ones, but they're much, much, much smaller and they're not worth noting. This is the only one that's really of note. Resulted in a whole loss? Yes. I think. Yeah. It. Oh, it. Yes. No, I know this one resulted in a whole loss, but was it the only whole loss at DIA? As far as I am aware, yes. Okay. There was that one time that that United got stuck on the, the runway. Remember? Yeah, yeah. It had a really bent landing gear, but that's that's repairable. I do want to preface, we will refer to it as DIA. No, that is not the technical term. It's, we know. DEN is the technical term. Yes. We know. K-DEN, technically. Yes. But it's been DIA. It will always be DIA. Leave me alone. Anybody local calls it DIA. That's just what it is. I mean, the road signs say DIA. It's Denver International Airport. Right. So that's just a whole thing. Anyways... This happened on December 20th of 2008, so middle of winter. It was actually very similar conditions to what we're dealing with right now. Today. Today, which is some snow on the ground, dark, cold, and, like, not actively snowing. That's just sometimes how it be. That's how it be. 
This is a Boeing 737-500 with winglets. This is a very rare version of 737 that very, very few operators have actually used over the years. Pretty much just Continental. Well, they they started it. They they made them, and then they sold them to a bunch of other carriers over the years. There's still a few floating around, but United had a few of them very, very briefly when they took over Continental. Well, well Continental, Continental took, took over, over United. United. Yes, but they t- stuck with the United. I know. They stuck, but they but they took stuck the Continental with logo. Continental logo, yeah. Yes, that's because they took Continental's management. <laughs> There's a whole long thing, and there are plenty of people on both sides of that that will argue about it. So, <laughs> globe versus tulip, right? Globe one. This one had the tail number November one eight six one one, just like Continental does. They didn't use any alphabetic characters at the end of their tail number. I didn't know that. That's a weird thing they always did, and that's how you can tell which one of United's airplanes today came from Continental because they still have those tail numbers that oh. have no letters at the end. Okay. Some of the new ones that they've acquired over the years also don't have letters at the end. So, this was a flight from Denver International Airport to Houston Intercontinental. I'm sorry. Can you say the full name, please? No. <laughs> it's like Houston, the George George H.W. Bush. Bush Intercontinental Airport. Is it George H.W. or George W.? No, it's I think George it's H.W. H- it's okay. H.W. It was named before. It was before the W. The W. Actually, it's neither. It's just the George Bush now. They It used to be the George H.W. Bush. They must have removed They the probably H-W. changed that so that it's like, it's for both of you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the George Bush Intercontinental Airport. There you go. Thank you. Anyways. Captain for this flight was David Butler. He was 50 years old. At the time, he had 13,100 hours total, of which 6,300 hours were on the 737. So he had actually quite a few hours on the type. Like, that 6,300 is a lot for one type. And pretty decently experienced overall. The first officer was Chad Levang. He was 34 years old, and at the time, he had 8,000 hours total, of which 1,500 were on the 737. So also relatively well-experienced and decent amount of experience on... The aircraft. The pilots arrived at the airport one hour before the scheduled departure time, arriving at 5 p.m. Therefore, the scheduled departure time was 6 p.m. <laughs> so that's a whole thing. It's pretty normal. The captain picked up the dispatch paperwork from the company operations coordinator. He then proceeded to the aircraft where he performed an external pre-flight. So he walked around the airplane on the outside make sure everything was good to go. Mm-hmm. The first officer, meanwhile, performed the pre-flight checks in the cockpit. So he did everything they had to do to set up in the cockpit. Once the captain was back in the cockpit, the two flight crew performed routine flight preparations, including checklists, receiving the ATIS information, and entering load and flight plan info into the flight management computer. So all of this is the normal things you do, as you do. While completing this, three cabin crew and 110 passengers boarded the flight to Houston. The captain was to be the pilot flying, while the first officer was to be the pilot monitoring for this leg. 6.04 p.m., so four minutes late. With boarding and flight preparations complete, the first officer contacted the ramp control for pushback approval. The ramp controller cleared the flight for pushback for a west taxi. So, in other words, they would push back with the tail to the east Mm -hmm. so that they could taxi to the west. The ground controller then subsequently cleared the flight to taxi to runway 34 right. So, Denver International being what it is, has six runways, and this is one of them. It is one of the north to south runways. Yes. It is on the west side of the airport, and it is yes. the east of the two. Yes. There is one 16,000-foot-long runway and five 12,000-foot-long runways, and this is one of the five. <laughs> so that's a whole thing. Which one is the 16,000? Three, four left. Okay. The other three, four. So the one it's directly parallel to. 6.12 p.m., the ground controller instructed the flight to monitor the tower frequency for takeoff clearance. So this is pretty normal at most airports. We don't really talk about this, but usually when they're switching from one to the other, the ground controller will just say, you know, monitor tower when you're ready to go, basically. And so they'll switch frequency, and they don't even have to say anything. At that point, it's just assumed that they're listening to the tower frequency, and as soon as the tower has the time, and they know where the aircraft is, of course, they will subsequently just give them the clearance to take off. They don't have to request that. 6.14 p.m. in 27 seconds, the tower controller instructed the flight to taxi into position and hold on runway 34 right. This means they would taxi onto the runway, turn onto the center line, and then stop. Because there was another aircraft ahead of them that had just departed. So it was too close for them to depart. The flight crew taxied the aircraft onto the runway and then completed the before takeoff checklist. So they took that last little moment to make sure everything was ready to go. 6.17 p.m. in 26 seconds, the air traffic controller cleared the flight for takeoff. 
stating winds 270 at 27 and instructed them to turn to a heading of 020 after takeoff. This is pretty normal. Give them winds, and then once they're on the roll, they lift off. They have a heading to turn to immediately. The first officer acknowledged the takeoff clearance, and at 6.17 p.m. and 49 seconds, they began their takeoff roll. The first officer set the takeoff power as instructed by the captain at 90.9%. It's very specific, but you can do that in these aircraft, these modern aircraft. Okay. Something also we don't talk about, but a lot of people think, you know, airplanes, they go to full throttle on takeoff, but they actually almost never do. They usually will only use a percentage, a high percentage, but a percentage of their available thrust. That way, should they end up in a situation where they need more, where they need more, they have more, <laughs> basically. And also it saves fuel. And there's a lot of reasons you don't need full thrust for takeoff. They're built not to need that. After setting the power, the first officer monitored the speed in order to make callouts while the captain focused his attention outside as normal. So watching down the center line, making sure everything's good. The aircraft accelerated down the runway in the dark. 6.18 p.m. and 7 seconds, as the aircraft accelerated through 55 knots, the aircraft began shifting to the left, off of the center line. A right rudder input was added, and the aircraft came back toward the center line as the aircraft crossed through 85 knots. That was just two seconds later, by the way. 6.18 p.m. and 11 seconds, a heavy right rudder input was done again as the aircraft reached 90 knots, before decreasing again. As this was occurring, the aircraft suddenly veered to the left heavily once more. One of the pilots then stated out loud, Jesus! Meanwhile, the other one, at 6.18 p.m. and 15 seconds, stated, Oh, sh-. It writes, oh, expletive in the... Oh. Could have been, oh, Probably not. I feel like now. Let's anyways. not argue on, this, on the... The bleeps that the are going to be bleeps. They're going to be bleeps anyways. Yeah. Suddenly, the brakes were applied heavily as the aircraft suddenly rolled off the left side of the runway. 2,600 feet from the beginning of it. So 12,000 feet they had, and they made 2,600 feet of it before rolling off the left side of the runway. Just as they left the runway, the captain called for a rejected takeoff and immediately reduced the engine power. The thrust reversers were then activated three seconds later. For not very long. Not very long at all. The aircraft crossed taxiway Whiskey Charlie, followed by an airport service road, at which time the aircraft hopped off a ledge into a ravine. The aircraft passed very, very close to a fire station, like... Nearly touched it. The aircraft impacted the ground hard at a speed of 90 knots, at which time the airframe broke apart into three major pieces, and the left engine sheared from the left wing. The aircraft continued to slide until finally coming to a stop sometime later. Both pilots were, quote-unquote, knocked out upon impact and didn't move from their seats for one to two minutes. The right engine was still attached to the aircraft. Unfortunately. But caused a fire, because it was still attached to the aircraft and yeah. didn't shear as designed. Fire. Go boom boom. Yep. Cabin crew and passengers began evacuating where able, primarily from the left side of the airplane, because it wasn't on fire. Yeah. <laughs> There's no engine there. Yep. Another aircraft had witnessed this aircraft departing the runway and called the tower to report the crash, at which time the airport crash alarm was activated and the emergency services were alerted. The wee-woo wagon. Yes, the wee-woo wagon. They had to call the wee-woo wagon. Yes. Though they had passed right by the fire station, none of the staff had actually seen the airplane. (laughs) (laughs) And there was some confusion about where this aircraft actually ended up, even though they weren't very far from that fire station at all. I believe that the tower had initially told them the wrong taxiway. So there's four fire stations on Denver airport grounds. And it needs them because it is 53 square miles, and that is a lot of distance to cover. For those of you who don't know, Denver International Airport is the largest airport in the world by area. Outdone now by Istanbul's new airport, but Denver uses more of their space. In any case, they need four fire stations. They passed by fire station number four. However, they the firefighters were told it was closer to fire station number one, which is south of fire station four. So from the southwest corner of the airport is one, and then it goes counterclockwise, one, two, three, four. Oh, okay. But they passed by four. So all of the firefighters from fire station four are running towards fire station one and seeing all the other firefighters going the other direction. And they're like, where the hell is this airplane? Right. They had no idea, even though they were literally right next to it. A big part of why that is, is because the aircraft had fallen 40 feet down into a ditch and it's dark out. They couldn't see it. They couldn't see fire? It's dark. Apparently not. And I mean, it's down in a ditch. Well, there's that. 
but they, they just couldn't see it. I know. <laughs> I know. Tired. Although I'm, the ground is 100% frozen. So, yep. you know. Well, and when Air Disasters put out an episode on this and they depicted it, you can't see anything below like the quote unquote cliff of the ravine. You couldn't see smoke, fire, aircraft, anything. And this is the abyss. still normal in Denver, actually. Between all of the runways, there are just these massive ditches. I mean, huge. They sometimes are a couple hundred feet deep. Like, they are big. This one was actually one of the more shallow. And actually, if you look at Google Maps, you can kind of still see where the uh, foliage has not really regrown since, you know, fuel was spilled on the ground. Yeah. It was actually kind of advantageous that they were on a slope because the fuel leaking from the fuel tanks was running down the hill. Yeah. Right. So it wasn't a source for a ginormous fire. Right. It was still a fire. I don't talk about it too much either, but the fire, we'll talk about this a little bit more later on, but there's another reason that it didn't just completely engulf the aircraft immediately. Like, and it didn't do more damage. It could have been so much worse. But we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Okay. Because it is kind of relevant, actually. The emergency services that did get there did manage to get there within a couple minutes. I mean, it still wasn't very long, thankfully. Like, yeah. it was. it happened fast. The fire burned much of the right side of the fuselage. The flight crew did eventually manage to escape the aircraft. They were the last ones off as the cabin crew and some deadheading crew had assisted the passengers in evacuating, so there was also other crew moving to Houston. That would suck to be deadheading and have the plane crash. Yeah, but I mean, at least you're there to help. True. You know, five passengers and the captain were seriously injured in the accident. 38 passengers and three crew were minorly injured, including the first officer. And 67 passengers and one crew were not injured at all. No one died. Nobody died. Nobody Considering died. how hard the impact was, that could have been a lot. Yes, there is one picture I will show you here. This is directly from the report. It's kind of the famous picture from this. Accident. Oh, look at that. It went a pretty good distance before it finally came to a stop. And I mean, you look can see the that. you can see the firehouse in this picture. Like, yes, you can. <laughs> it's literally right behind the firehouse. It was literally right there. <laughs> but that firehouse is facing the other direction. Yes. So they also just weren't paying attention to the fact the airplane was literally right there. <laughs> okay. That all you got? That is it. Cool. This investigation was performed by the National and Transportation Safety Board. TSB. TSB. And according to the Air Disasters episode, they had a mountainous task ahead of them. <laughs> but I'm... Oh, wait. We're a mountain town. It's the it's the one closest to you on yep. the bottom. Yes. <laughs> We're finally figuring this out. We don't use it enough to remember. Nope. Both black boxes, along with the quick access recorder, were retrieved from the wreckage and were able to be read out at NTSB Labs in Washington, D.C. Ta-da. One advantage of having the Air Disasters episode is that they actually delve into all the rabbit holes that don't necessarily end up in the investigation report, and that's what we're going to do now. Ta-da! One of the first places that the investigators looked into was the runway itself. Especially for a runway incursion, you can glean a lot of information about what might have instigated the diversion from the center line. The tracks on the runway proved that it was a very sudden veer off the runway, not a slow lean, but rather quite an angle. Well, this is a 737. I suppose we should probably discuss the rudder hard over phenomenon. This was first investigated from a crash in Colorado. Colorado. Yep, Colorado yep. Springs. Springs. Yep. Where Miranda will be tomorrow. Yep. This was still very relevant because of the fact that this is a 737-500, which is an original quote-unquote series, or a classic, sorry, a classic series 737 rather than original. The originals are the 100-200, mm-hmm. the classics are the... 300, 400, 500, and then you have the NGs, which are the 700, 800, 900, and then you have the Max. Many different series of 737. This was the same one that was having the hard over, rudder hard over. Yep. So that's why this was relevant. So in episode 13, we discussed the crash of UA-585 in Colorado Springs, and then in episode 14, we discussed US-427. Both of these crashes, along with East Wind Flight 517 in episode 15, were attributed to a fault in the 737 that would cause the rudders to seemingly randomly actuate to the extreme of its range and cause the aircraft to lose control and hard over. Yeah. But this is years later. Has the rudder hardover come back to haunt us? One would really hope not so many years later. Investigators analyzed the accident rudder actuator system on the accident aircraft, knowing what to look for, and they found nothing amiss. I mean, that's a good thing. Next! Investigators returned to the runway and found a different detail about the tire tracks. The nose wheel mark was particularly dark, way darker than it should have been. What would cause that? It's a phenomenon called scrubbing, where some kind of extreme lateral movement pushed a tire sideways, causing the tread of the tire to be ground down since it's facing the wrong way. There are a couple of things that can cause scrubbing to occur. 
For one, if the steering system controlled by the rudder pedals jammed, it may cause the nose wheel to become affixed in the wrong direction. This theory was initially suspected when the cable controlling that system was found. Snapped. Yikes. However, we are still in the rabbit hole section of this script. <laughs> I was going to say, that's not it. <laughs> yeah, that's not it. It was determined that the cable snapped during impact. Which, yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. For two, if the brakes jam, this may also result in the nose gear becoming stuck the wrong way, and you can tell if they're jammed because the metal within the brake wheel hub system would be discolored. It wasn't. Well. Let's take a break. <laughs> from talking about the airplane itself and talk weather. The National Weather Service reported a low-pressure system in parts of Colorado at the time of the crash, but nothing severe. Investigators looked into the runway conditions at the time of the crash. Contaminated runways have been known to cause runway excursions, such as TAM 3054 and American Airlines 331, episodes 12 and 56, respectively. But the runway was dry at the time of takeoff, so there goes that theory, too. Yep, yep. There was snow on the ground around the runways, but the runways themselves, totally dry. Fun fact, Denver uh, has one of the fastest snow removal teams ever. Yep, one of the best there is in the world. They actually compete. Look this up. There's actually competitions for snow removal teams around the world, and Denver actually tops it. Despite having the largest area to cover. Yep. Hmm. You're going to get all the DIA facts today. Sorry. Well, how are the winds looking? They left the runway to the left, which may have been caused by a crosswind if it exceeded the limitations of the aircraft. Why are there limitations? Well, when counteracting wind, the crew has to use the rudder pedals, but it can only do so much before the strength of the wind overcomes the influence of the rudder. This 737, per continental policy, could handle a crosswind of up to 33 knots before risking a runway runoff. Weather from the ATIS showed wind coming from 280 at 11 knots, well under the 33-knot threshold. Air traffic control provided the crew with data from on the airport itself at the time of takeoff, which reflected winds of 270 at 27 knots. That's a lot, but it is still under the threshold. That is also almost a direct crosswind for anyone who's checking. Investigators determined that with the given wind information and the lack of crosswind issue reports, the crew acted properly in proceeding to runway 34 right. Okay, I'm tired of rabbit holes now. Yep. What if the crew didn't react to that crosswind properly? It's something that pilots are taught to do very early on in their training for their private pilot certificate, so that would be a little hard for me to believe. Investigators analyzed the FDR and found appropriate rudder inputs for the crosswind, applying pressure to the right rudder pedal in the area of around 50% of its limit of travel and doing so at various levels with the varying crosswind. Then at 6.18 and 6.7 seconds, the captain first applied a large and rapid input of 88% of the rudder's range before he relaxed his feet on the rudders to about 15% as they steadied just to the right of the center line before beginning to go back left. He anticipated this and began advancing the right rudder again, pausing at 53%, and the nose kept going left, so he increased the right rudder up to 72% at 6.18 and 11.75 seconds. And then he relaxed again to about 32%. And then the main landing gear tires began to skid on the pavement, and the aircraft rapidly turned to the left at 6.18 and 13.2 seconds. And the rudder pedals had relaxed to neutral right as one of the pilots said, Jesus. Was he not trained for this? That's not it either. He used to land fighter jets on aircraft carriers. He knows yep. what he's doing. Yep. Yep. They know how to deal with winds. Good news. He's alive. So we can talk to him. Yep. So investigators sat down with him and went over all of the events. The captain confirmed that there was a crosswind, but all of a sudden it felt as if someone put their hand on the rudder and they jolted to the left and the rudder inputs didn't seem to be helping. So he released those and tried to use the tiller as a last resort. It's like a tiny steering wheel to the, mm -hmm. the side. It's a crank, basically. Yeah. And they're only supposed to use it at speeds below, I think it was like 20 miles an hour. Something like that. Yeah. Slow. Like slow taxiing, you can use it. But this actually explains why the nose gear was scrubbing, because he had turned the nose gear. Yep. Investigators analyzed the rudder and determined there was nothing wrong with it mechanically, so his report of it not helping with the crosswind seemed a little odd. If the wind was below the limits of the aircraft, the rudder should have been able to counter it. Ah, but the first part of that sentence is where the hitch is. The CBR revealed that the crew were looking at the clouds when they were getting ready for takeoff, and noticed that the clouds were low and moving really fast, so the winds aloft were quite strong. Were the on-the-ground wind reports even accurate? Good question. 
Investigators looked into the sources of the wind data for both the ATIS and the tower. The ATIS was reporting 11 knots and was getting the data from an automated surface observing system, or ASOS, which was about two and a half miles southeast of the approach end of runway 34 right. It's near the center of the airport, a little east of the terminal, at a height of 33 feet. If you look at the map of the low-level wind shear alert system sensors, which I will get to in a minute, cue in a minute, all the purple, mm-hmm. pinkish. The ASOS station is next to sensor 14, just east of runway 17 right or 35 left. It's also visible on Google Maps. Yes. Point is, that's quite a ways away from where the accident flight was. Two miles can make quite a big difference in wind, believe it or not. Okay, what about the tower? Where are they getting their information? The Denver Air Traffic Control Tower is relaying wind information from the departure end of the runways. And in this case, that came from Sensor 3 from the low-level wind shear alert system at a height of 100 feet. Investigators reviewed the data and found that the information being displayed at the time was the information relayed. Or was it? The tower has a seven-line ribbon readout of different wind values from the sensors. And one of them is entitled Airport Winds, or AW. And that comes from a sensor about 3,300 feet northeast of the approach end of runway 34 right. That sensor was recording the highest speeds at the night on the night of the crash, gusting to 40 knots. Oof. That's yep. Rough. That's a rough one. Yep. Well, that's certainly a very different number than what they were told. What were the winds like at the accident site at the time of the accident? That's the real question. And it's actually a pretty hard question to answer. Luckily for investigators, the National Center for Atmospheric Research, or NCAR, is located conveniently in Boulder, Colorado. Yep. A quick 45-minute drive away from the airport if you're using the toll road. It's actually more because they're in Aurora, but whatever. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, they're off of like 225 and 6th. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I drive by there every day. Yep. Mm-hmm. NCAR conducted a study on the winds on the day of the accident. This area of the plains, yes, we're on the plains, we are not in the mountains. The front range of the mountains is to our west. Yes. Yes. The area of the plains is really unique for winds because we experience what is called mountain wave activity. Sorry, mountain wave activity. (laughs) Mountain. 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 I'll die on this hill. (laughs) On this mountain? Exactly. As wind is coming from west to east, it increases with the rising terrain of the Rocky Mountains to at least 20 knots at the peaks. At the peaks, it creates a stable layer which gives the best conditions for the airflow over the ridges to produce a harmonic oscillation, an atmospheric wave of rising and sinking motions that can extend hundreds of miles past the mountains in a mountain wave. Yep. You know what's right past the Rocky Mountains? Denver. The Denver metro area. Yeah. Including the airport. Including us. Yes. The symptoms of the mountain wave include downslope winds, atmospheric pressure jumps, and rotor clouds, which are actually really cool to see if you look them up. Yes, they are really cool, actually. An advisory circular issued in 2000 about this area, in particular, indicated that localized surface gusts in excess of 50 knots are not abnormal. Not at all. NCAR had previously studied the severe windstorms around Boulder, since that's where they are. Makes sense. But they hadn't much studied areas further east, like the airport. Where it matters. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, let's be honest here though i will say i think it made international news the marshall fire last year in oh, the yeah. boulder area yep those winds from the mountains oh yeah mountain wave activity yes it was so it can be absolutely devastating oh absolutely it can be anyway ncar ran a simulation based on the weather data they had for the day along with the data collected from the low level wind shear alert system at the airport the model showed that winds in the foothills west of the airport could have been up to 80 to 100 knots Oof. And the winds at the airport could have been up to 40 to 68 knots, well out of the range of that aircraft crosswind. The foothills area corresponded to the, quote, numerous pilot reports or PIREPs of turbulent conditions over Colorado associated with mountain wave activity were reported between about 1500 and 2300 the night of the accident. The highest incidence of turbulence occurred between 17,000 and 19,000 feet. Several pilots reported airspeed variations of plus or minus 15 knots and 500 feet altitude deviations. Yikes. That's a lot. There were two pyrep sighting encounters with severe to extreme turbulence, which by definition indicates that the airplane was impossible to control and might have incurred structural damage. In addition, there were several pyreps of low-level wind shear during the period, end quote. So a very strong gust was very possible. But how much? Now it's time for a little back calculation. NTSB investigators calculated what speed of wind gust would have been required to initiate the runway excursion that was presented. A lot of math later, and the answer was a gust of 45 knots. 
falling right into the gust calculations from the NCAR study. Investigators delved into how wind information got disseminated to flight crews because ultimately, if the crew had the proper wind information, this accident never would have happened. Yep. Plain and simple. The local controller, as we said, had given the wind information for the low-level wind shear alert system sensor 3 near the departure end of runway 34 right. Which is the far end away from where they are. Yep. Information for the arrival end of runway 34 right was also displayed on the ribbon display terminal from sensor 2, which would have been the most accurate estimate for the takeoff roll and had indicated 29 to 39 knots before the accident, numbers that may have had the crew thinking twice. And I mentioned the airport winds that was also displayed that showed gusts of 40 knots. Why wasn't that relayed to the pilots? Per the FAA, there was no requirement for air traffic control personnel to provide wind information from other sources, so they simply weren't given that information. They didn't have to, so they didn't give it, which feels like a... I'm sorry, but duh? You should? Maybe? (laughs) Yeah, but as we know, people do the minimal amount of work. Yes, and unfortunately they couldn't fault the air traffic controllers for that because they weren't required to give it. Well, and they weren't trained that, hey... Maybe when this comes up a little bit higher. It might matter to the pilots. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, Miranda hasn't asked the question. I already know the question, but I'm saving it because you told me to. You may ask the same question that Nick and I were screaming while watching the Air Disasters episode. And Miranda maybe has the same question because she knows the airport layout of Denver International. Why didn't they just take off from a different runway? Because the designers of DIA, <clears throat> Kaden, whatever knew that the front range gets crazy winds from all sorts of directions, they made runways in all directions so that no matter the wind direction, the airport can operate. They should never have a crosswind of more than 45 degrees off of their wing. Correct. Off of their direct direction of heading. So that is why they designed them with east to west and north to south, because it could be anything. Ergo, why it looks like a swastika. Pretty much. One of the primary runways that Denver uses for takeoffs, even today is runway 25, which would have pointed basically directly into the wind. Yep. So why didn't they use it? Well, they were using it. This accident occurred during a really busy time, probably a departure bank hour. Yep. Fun fact, at this time, Denver was the 10th busiest airport in the world. It is now third. (laughs) Both in the United States and the world at this point. Yep. But at the time, they were the 10th busiest airport in the world. And they had a lot of traffic to deal with. So during this departure bank hour, they were using runways 25, 34 left, and 34 right for takeoffs. And no one had reported any issues using the 34 runways despite the crosswind. So air traffic control continued using it. In fact, the preceding aircraft to the accident aircraft was a Beach 1900. Small little prop, Jubby. If anyone's going to have crosswind issues, it's probably going to be them. So yeah, but if you know anything about how some of these bursts of wind happen, uh-huh. they happen literally like that. And it's over. Uh huh. Sometimes they pull up trees and too. It's crazy. But this gives you confidence bias because you watched a little bird take off right ahead of you. And so you think it's fine. Right. So you think everything's fine in your big old jet. Yeah. And then it's not fine. And then suddenly it's not. Here's a fun quote for you The Den ATCT, Air Traffic Control Tower. Yep. Runway selection policy does not clearly account for crosswind components when selecting a runway configuration, end quote. Guess what changed? That changed. Yeah. I'm like, (laughs) why not? That's the whole point of how it's set up. Exactly. And so that changed. That was a pretty easy fix. Yeah. You have all these runways at your disposal. Uh, Use them. Thank you. Right. The last component of this analysis I'll delve into is the crosswind training. In delving through the captain's records to determine if he had been trained for crosswinds, they found he had performed a takeoff in a crosswind of 35 knots in a simulator, like I imagine many pilots do. However, there had to be a how. However, investigators tried out one of these simulators and they found that the simulators were not programmed to simulate gust effects below 50 feet of altitude. So like, you know, on the ground. Where it would be like the most important that it happens. Where it mattered in this accident? Uh-huh. <laughs> so the simulators could not replicate the complex nature of takeoffs and landings in gusty crosswinds. Right. It is also worth noting the rarity of this strong of a crosswind on takeoff. Investigators gathered operational flight data from Continental for 250,327 takeoffs. That's all. And they found that of those, only four had a crosswind component of 30 knots or more in the eight years preceding the accident. Which is pretty astonishing. That is pretty crazy. That is such a low number, it's not even registerable. Not only are you unlikely to have one of these takeoffs in your day-to-day, you're unlikely to have one in your whole freaking career. Yep. Yep. 
This was more, this is less likely than a lightning strike. Like this, yeah. pilots really were thrown into a situation they never could have prepared Should for. you train for it still? Yeah. Yeah. It's a worthwhile uh, thing. Of course. Should the simulator still be accurate? Yeah. Yeah. The last point that I added uh, rapidly, as we mentioned it, we mentioned that the fire was not as bad as it could have been. Right. Because the crosswind was blowing the fire away from the fuselage. Right. If this fire had been on the I left side. I was going to say, it was probably just wind blowing it away. Right. If the fire had been on the left side of the airplane, it would have burned the whole thing because it would have been blowing over the fuselage. But because it was on the right wing, it was actually tending to blow away from the fuselage. So it burned the whole wing. It burned part of the fuselage, but it didn't do as much damage as it could have. And it didn't cost lives, which is ultimately pretty lucky, actually. Mm-hmm. So that's all I got. Okay. Covered a lot. Yes. We'll talk about all the normal stuff in the second half. So let's take a break. Break. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. We're back. Let's do the normal things. The normal stuffy stuffs? It is all the normal stuffs. There are 24 findings. I am not doing 24 findings. Thank you. That's a lot of findings. It is, actually. It's not It's not as many as I've seen in some reports recently, but it is quite a few. They found that no evidence indicated any pre-accident failure of the accident airplane's power plant structures or systems, including the nose wheel steering system. That was important, obviously, because... They wanted to know right away, like, how could this happen to what seemed like a perfectly good airplane on a takeoff roll? Like, how did it just roll off? Well, it wasn't anything structural or mechanical or anything related to the airplane at all, actually. They found that the flight attendants acted appropriately when they initiated an emergency evacuation using only the exits on the left side of the airplane because of fire on the right side of the airplane. All passengers were successfully evacuated before fire entered the cabin. This was a very successful evacuation, and this is part of why we train for these things, and this is why in modern aviation, accidents just aren't deadly. Most of the time. They found that although there was some initial confusion about the location of the accident, the timeliness of the emergency response was not a significant issue in this accident. The firefighting activities conducted by Denver National Airport, aircraft rescue, and firefighting crews were effective in suppressing the exterior and interior fires. I actually know some of the people, I've met some of the people that responded in the emergency response center at Denver that were still working there back then, and they responded to this. They were part of the response. Which is crazy that you get to know those people. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's neat. It's all right. I've been inside the emergency operations center for the airport. Um, it's cool. It's as like almost sci-fi-y as you can imagine. They have every statistic, like live statistic rolling on the airport at any given Jesus. time. They have all the live radars. They have all the Jesus. camera views of everything. There's like a thousand screens up on one wall. They have the rolling, the time clocks and everything. Like it, it really is just about as sci-fi as you can imagine. And there's like all these desks with computers in front of that. And then there's one big like half moon desk overseeing all of this with a bunch of computer Jesus. screens. Like it really is as sci-fi as you can imagine it is. It's pretty cool. Would they know of an accident like this before the tower did? Not necessarily. Okay. I mean, the emergency alert, as soon as the tower would have pushed that button, it immediately triggers in that office. But would they have detected a uh, aircraft leaving the runway? Not necessarily. Okay. No. Just curious. Nope. They found that given the wind-related information the pilots had, their decision to proceed with a takeoff on runway 34 right as planned was reasonable. Yes. I would argue, yes, it is, but also marginally. And I understand there's a few things here. I mean, absolutely, they didn't have enough information about the winds. I agree with that. But it was 90 degrees off their left side, which is concerning because the reality is that's a pretty heavy crosswind that they just didn't need to deal with when they were also taking off aircraft on 2-5. Yes, but there were aircraft taking off on 3-4. Right. Both of them. Right. And that's the, without issues. That is, and it was below the company policy for the limitations of the aircraft. Turns right. out the actual limitation for the aircraft is actually more like 40 knots. Right. Of course. But that's they have a the, safety factor. Right. Them. That's the safety factor. But still, that's the bias thing, regardless of the fact that they could have been taking off on 2 5 
much more safely. Yes, but they were not faulty in their decision to continue. They were not three, four, right? And if it wasn't them, it could have been somebody else. Yeah, like we could be talking about United flight. We could be talking about an American Airlines flight. Like it's not just the fact that no, of course not. They were just the unlucky ones. Captains (laughs) are the ones who did this. No, they were literally just the unlucky. They were the ones who happened to take off at that specific time with that specific gust of wind that ended up causing them to you know right roll off the runway. Like they didn't have enough information. I would not say that. It would be marginally because of normal the normal way the airport was operating, right? Right. There was no way for them to know. And even if they had decided or said that they wanted to take off on 2-5, right. that it would not have happened anyway. Right. And yes, it is still normal to this day, I believe. Don't quote me on this. I actually quote Nick on this. For them to be using three different runways for departures. Absolutely it is, but in much lower winds. Of sure. course, they are much more acutely aware of the wind conditions. They are very apt to tell you all of the things related to the winds now. They definitely learn from their mistakes at the airport here, which is great. Should have been doing those anyways. It's kind of more on the FAA than so much more than the airport. The airport was giving them the information. They were choosing not to use it. (laughs) So that has changed, but that has also changed across the board for the FAA and all the towers. That's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to give you the wind and the gust. That's an important thing. And there are certain ways they calculate those things, figure those things out, different sensors, things like that. But also... They will absolutely use three runways at a time for takeoff. They do every single day here as long as the winds are low. But as soon as the winds become high from any one direction, like, say, 20 plus knots, they immediately switch to whatever runway is more immediately down the runway. Yeah, has the wind more immediately down the runway. So they also will use three runways at a time for landing, which is really cool to see a triple parallel landing. Right. They can use up to four at a time for landing, which is crazy. It's astonishing. I mean, they could literally be operating six runways at a time, and they have at times where they have, say, three for takeoff or four for takeoff and two for landing or vice versa, which is just astonishing. It really is. But that's so cool. It is cool. There was one time we had to chase the 747. Yeah, around the other side of the airport. And we (laughs) we thought it was coming in on the north side, and it turns out it was coming in on the east side. East side, which is rare, actually. And we were like, oh, and so we had to get in the car and like book it, book it. around so we could see it land. Yeah, it Good was like news. a whole 10 miles because of the way this airport is. <laughs> Good news. Those are all back roads. So we uh, went fast. Yes, we I'm did. I'm not going to say in regards to the speed limit. We went fast. fast <laughs> we went fast. I don't even remember who was driving. Was Brendan. It, it was Brendan. It was Brendan. It was Brendan. I, I was probably I'm pretty sure it was Brendan and he just cooked. He was like, <laughs> yeah, he had that horrible green thing. We were in that horrible. Oh, no, I thought we were in the Tucson. No. no. This was before the Tucson. Definitely. Oh, I thought he, I th- I'm pretty sure he was in the Tucson because right. I was working at the elementary school at the time. I don't think so. I don't know. About I, this Anyways, it doesn't matter. Anyway. This airport is massive. It really is. It's hard to fathom just how big it is until you have to drive all the way around it. and you. Oh realize. my gosh. When you're going plane spotting and they change runway directions, it's such a pain in the for some airports, that point. for <laughs> some like, airports, like some major airports, it's easy because like, okay, the runway is usually like six or 8,000 feet, maybe 10,000 feet, and you have to go around one side to the other. It's pretty quick and easy. But with this, it is literally a difference of sometimes up to 12 to 13 miles to get from one place to another, one end to the other. It is... Uh, and that's as the bird, as the crow flies. Right, as the crow flies. Like, it is a chunk. It is far think, away to drive from one side to yeah. the other. Like, at least half an hour, I think, one time it was. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, and that's going around the outside, by the way. Yeah. Right. But yes. No, you can't just drive through the airport, Miranda. Right. <laughs> you don't know that. If you drive fast <laughs> enough. Even within the airport, It's actually, illegal, but you could. Fun fact, and this is kind of the same, actually, at many other major airports, but I know we're going on a tangent, but within the airport, actually, it, depending on your access, tells you where you can drive on the airport, of course. That is relatively normal. But like their access roads are all color labeled. And if you aren't trained or certified to be on a certain road, you can get fined and have your privileges revoked. They can do all those things. Like within the airport, there are only certain people that are allowed to drive on certain roads, too. Like that is a whole thing. Dear, where are you allowed to drive? Me? Nowhere. I don't have any driving. (laughs) Damn it. I I am not driving certified at the airport. I don't want to be. I could be, but I don't want to be. Okay. So that's a whole thing. Anyways. Moving on. They found that mountain wave conditions were present at the time of the accident and resulted in strong westerly winds and very localized intermittent wind gusts as high as 45 knots that crossed the airplane's path during the takeoff ground roll. I honestly think that gusts probably went higher than that. That's just the one they calculated. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, of course. 
They found that the unexpectedly strong and gusty crosswinds the airplane encountered as it accelerated during the takeoff roll made maintaining directional control during this takeoff a more difficult control task than the captain was accustomed to dealing with. However, had the captain immediately reapplied significant right rudder pedal input as the airplane was continuing its left-turning motion, the airplane would not have departed the runway. They determined after many calculations and some simulations that actually if Basically, maintaining the input that he had with it doing the, what do you call it? Weather veining? Not even the weather veining, the, the wheel sideways. Oh, scrubbing? The Sorry. scrubbing, thank you. It doing the scrubbing wasn't doing the airplane any good. If he had released and then reapplied full, it could have brought the airplane back onto the runway. But he wasn't trained for that, so he didn't know Correct. that. If it, he released the, the nose gear? If he yes, had basically. released the rudder altogether and then reapplied oh, right. the rudder. Okay. Right. Yeah. Which brings both the rudder and the nose wheel with it. Okay. Got so it. yeah, this is a whole thing. This is a whole. But there's no way he could have known that. But he didn't know. He wasn't trained. And that's. Not his fault. Right. Not his fault. It's all part of it. That's just how it was. The fact that the airplane could have been salvageable, I understand. But that's all more to the point about why they should be training this. Mm-hmm. So. They found that the captain's initiation of a rejected takeoff was delayed by about two to four seconds because he was occupied with the nose wheel steering tiller and right control wheel input, both of which were ineffective and appropriate for steering the airplane. The rudder was the right thing. Yeah. Understandably, again, not trained. They found that if air traffic control personnel and pilots operating at airports located downwind of mountainous terrain had sufficient airport-specific information regarding the localized and transient nature of strong and gusty winds associated with mountain wave and downslope conditions, they would be able to make more informed runway selection decisions, i.e. runway 25. Simple as that. I mean, these, this, these days, it's so common for the winds to come out of the west here on a normal day. When we get weather patterns, shifty weather patterns, anything oh, like that. Oh, it gets crazy. Then it doesn't matter. I mean, it could be coming from literally any direction. But on any given clear day or decent day, it is almost always coming out of the west over the mountains. And so runway 25 is the primary. It is the one they use the most often for takeoffs. And the three fours, they end up getting used quite a bit if the winds are lower. So on the front range, oftentimes you'll hear a Colorado native say, it smells like Greeley. It's going to snow. That is not a joke, nor is it. It's false. actually, yeah, nor it's is it false. true. Like it is actually so, scientifically, there's a reason for that. <laughs> so Greeley is a college town up north, but it's also a farm town. They have a ton of dairy farms, cow farms. Some of the largest cattle farms on earth are in um, Greeley. If you remember when the meat packing industry was having all those issues with COVID breakouts, there was one in Greeley. Anyway, so when a storm is coming, a snowstorm, it usually comes in from the north. So the winds blow in from the north, making all the weather patterns at the airport crazy. They yep. are then using the north to south runways for a takeoff and landing because that is the most apt set of runways for that weather condition. But it also smells like cow Yep. Yeah. And you can tell when snow is coming. It literally does all over the Denver metro area. You will just smell cow and you know that, yeah, oh, it's, it's going to start snowing in a couple starts hours. starts to smell like manure. It just, like, the whole city just starts to smell like manure. And people are like, why does it smell so bad in Denver? Well, if that means it's going to snow. Yep. Because literally it's blowing in all of that methane from up north over the city. It smells like Greeley. Yep. And it smells nasty. Yes, it does. See, all the Denver tips today. Yep. No, you cannot call yourself a Colorado native. No. Get out. That's right. Please leave. They found that if the accident pilots had received the most adverse available wind information, which was displayed as airport wind on the Denver International Airport Air Traffic Control Tower, local controllers ribbon display terminal and indicated at 35 knot crosswind with 40 knot gusts, the captain would likely have decided to delay the departure or request a different runway because the resulting crosswind component exceeded Continental's 33 knot crosswind guidelines. Simple as that. If he had read that out loud, the pilots would have said no. They found that currently the Denver International Airport Air Traffic Control Tower runway selection policy does not clearly account for crosswind components when selecting a runway configuration. Again, that has changed. They found that because Continental's simulator training did not replicate the ground-level disturbances and gusting crosswinds that often occur at or near the runway surface, and it is unlikely that the accident captain had previously encountered gusting surface crosswinds like those he encountered the night of the accident, the captain was not adequately prepared to respond to the changes in heading encountered during this takeoff. So, needless to say, the whole thing about being trained on winds at surface level. Important. The last one I'm going to read. They found that because there are no standards for the development of enhanced crosswind guidelines for transport category airplanes, Boeing 
did not adequately consider the dynamic handling qualities of the Boeing 737 during takeoff or landing in strong and gusty crosswinds. It is likely that the enhanced crosswind guidelines developed by other manufacturers are similarly deficient. Basically, no one in the industry knows how to handle this. Right. They were like, just don't go above this or else. (laughs) And everybody's like, what do you mean or else? And they're like, we don't know. Just or else. Can we change things up a bit and read Finding 23? I guess I can read Finding 23. This is, yes, this, I, was, I have this in the recommendations, which okay. is why I wasn't reading it here. Welcome back to the Fatigue Podcast. Welcome back oh. to the Fatigue Podcast. Okay. This is what I was there talking about with the fatigue thing. They found that a flight attendant jump seat that is weakened due to undetected metal fatigue could fail under lower than expected crash loads and injure a cabin crew member who might subsequently be needed to perform critical safety duties, such as evacuating passengers. It and almost this, sounds like that happened. Yeah, basically because it did. The that seat? Was, yeah, the seat. Yeah, the seat broke, broke from the wall because of the metal fatigue. And then the cabin crew member was injured and was subsequently needed to assist in the evacuation. Yep. This was actually the smaller concern, though, but this is why I said there would be fatigue. But the bigger concern was actually the flight crew seats, which is why they were knocked out, because they weren't properly restrained. I mean, they were in their seats as restrained as they could be, but they actually, the seats themselves did not meet the modern regulation. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, well, because they were produced before that. I don't care. So, right. Retrofit them. Right. Well, they hadn't, and there was no requirement to. (sighs) Yay. The regulation only says, from this day forward, all manufacturers must add this to their new aircraft. And And that's what they do. They should retrofit. Right. Guess what? One of the recommendations is. Good job. Okay. The probable cause verbatim, as usual. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the captain's cessation of right rudder input, which was needed to maintain directional control of the airplane about four seconds before the excursion when the airplane encountered a strong and gusty crosswind that exceeded the captain's training and experience. Contributing to the accident were the following factors. One, an error traffic control system that did not require or facilitate the dissemination of key available wind information to the air traffic controllers and pilots. And two, inadequate crosswind training in the airline industry due to deficient simulator wind gust modeling. There you go. Yep. A very uh, well-rounded accident, actually. Yes. Wasn't just one thing. No. Couldn't be just one thing. It never is. The Swiss cheese model has worked. Right. And the nice thing about when they're kind of well-rounded like this, is that they're also very easy to fix. Like, they're, they just throw out some recommendations, and they're like, seriously, just do this. Like, it's just not that hard. <laughs> and they did. <laughs> God, guys, it's just not that hard. It's not that hard. So I'm not doing all of the recommendations either, but I am doing some of the ones that I felt were pertinent, especially because they kind of tend to be a little bit lengthy. They recommend conducting research into and document the effects of mountain wave and downslope conditions at airports, such as Denver International Airport, that are located down wind of mountainous terrain, including, for example, airports in or near Colorado Springs, Colorado, Anchorage, Alaska, Salt Lake City, Utah, Reno, Nevada. Identify potential mountain wave-related hazards to ground operations at those airports and disseminate the results to pilots and airport air traffic control personnel to allow for more informed runway selection decisions. Simple as that. If you're in a mountainous area, you should kind of understand how the weather patterns work in your area and how you can... uh, Make sure you make precise runway decisions as an air traffic controller. It is worth noting that this is more pertinent for mountains like the Rockies, where they are very tall and very jagged. It is not as applicable to, say, the Appalachian Mountains, which are shorter and more rounded. Right. Not as much, though it can still be an effect. It can, but not as drastic. Right. Also, there aren't as many trees in the way here. That's a big thing. That really is a big thing. Mm-hmm. Because you talk about places like the Appalachians where they have 200-foot-tall trees that tend to protect everything at ground level. The wind's going to soar over those. Meanwhile, here, there's no trees. It just goes right over the ground. So, that's a whole thing. They recommend modifying Federal Aviation Administration Order 7110.65 to require air traffic controllers at airports with multiple sources of wind information to provide pilots with the maximum wind component, including gusts that the flight could encounter. Taking what is literally the highest point at that time at the airport and saying, this is your potential. So this is could a- have saved the whole thing. This is something I didn't bring up a whole, whole lot, but the sensors that were relaying data to air traffic controllers were taking an average of a span of time. Right. So I don't remember what the exact values are, but for example, it would take the average of 10 seconds and relay that number to air traffic control and do that every 10 seconds. So every 10 seconds, they were getting a new average of the previous 10 seconds. Well, that's a problem when you probably should actually have the maximum. Yeah. Right. Statistics. 
Yep. In this case, the maximum is the most pertinent information to determine safety decisions. Right. When I mean, you take an average, and that average is, say, winds of 27 knots, that means that the high end of that is above that, uh-huh. well above that, probably. They recommend requiring air traffic control towers to locally develop and implement written runway selection programs that proactively consider current and developing wind conditions and include clearly defined crosswind components, including wind gusts, when considering operational advantage with respect to runway selection. So quite literally, and they do have this here in Denver, they train exactly how to do runway selection here in Denver because of the fact that we have very specific weather patterns Uh and very strange ones. That allows them to make very informed decisions, so it's always the right thing. That was a big thing that was studied and changed everywhere. They recommend gathering data on surface winds at a sample of major U.S. airports, including Denver International Airport, when high wind conditions and significant gusts are present, and use these data to develop realistic gusty crosswind profiles for use in pilot simulator training programs. Take all the data you've learned about all these different takeoffs and landings, and at the surface level, these gusty winds, train on that, use that data to create a simulator training, and teach pilots how to deal with that at ground level, because... That is pertinent thing that could have saved them in this case. So I think that is a very worthwhile recommendation given the circumstances. I think that would have been, that's probably the number one recommendation in my mind, though the whole thing with the FAA was a big one too. They recommend that once realistic gusty crosswind profiles as asked for in safety recommendation A10-110 are developed, develop a standard methodology including pilot in the loop testing for transport category airplane manufacturers to establish empirically based type-specific maximum gusting crosswind limitations for transport category airplanes that account for wind gusts, saying take that same data and use it now when you manufacture aircraft. What is the maximum? Why is it the maximum? And how should the airplane handle when you manufacture the aircraft and you test it? That's there important. There you go. It's important. They recommend until the actions described in safety recommendation A-10-113 are accomplished, require manufacturers of transport category airplanes to provide operators with interim crosswind takeoff guidelines that account for crosswinds. So saying, okay, you need to do all the work on this now, but in the meantime, set the limitation and why Yeah. for all the current aircraft that are out there. Three more that are a little less related to the actual accident itself, although I'm not going to say that because they are, but... They recommend requiring cockpit crew seats installed in newly manufactured airplanes that were type certified before 1988 to meet the crashworthiness standards contained in 14 Code of Federal Regulations 25.562, which is making sure that the seat actually has proper restraints when they have a heavy impact like they had in this one. And so, you know, like the, people don't get hurt. Right. The so seat doesn't come off. Right. So the crew, the captain and the first officer don't get severely injured the way that they did and get knocked out. They recommend requiring operators to perform periodic inspection on the Burns Aerospace Model 2501-5 jump seats for fatigue cracks within the jump seat structure and replace the jump seat if fatigue cracks are found. There's that whole fatigue crack thing. Fatigue. 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 And finally, they recommend requiring that operators of transport category airplanes that use galley latches or latch plates secure solely by adhesives that may degrade over time modify the latches to include mechanical fasteners. And these days, they are all mechanical, but I thought this one was really interesting because they found, like, some of the, like, things that they use to hold heavy objects, i.e. carts and drawers, drawers and such in place, were just, like, little adhesive stuck-on latches. Like command strips? Pretty much. Oh, God. (laughs) No! Instead of literally, like, screwed in in latches that are attached to them. Which is what they use now. Like, there's these very specific kind of latches. And they're all red. Yeah, they do that for a reason. Not in every airplane, but in a lot of them they are. basically all the ones I've ever seen. Yes, most of them are red. And for a reason. And that makes it work. Because then it makes it really obvious when they're not flipped down. For safety, obviously. That's an important thing. So that that was a thing of note as well, but that's it. That's the whole thing in a nutshell. This one was our local one, and this was the the thing that it did change some some things for sure. And it hopefully, changed, we never have a local one ever again. Yep, I hope not. This changed training on crosswinds. This changed how the FAA uses wind data at airports in the tower when making decisions and telling pilots wind data and. This is just some really important things to have, and this really does make a a big impact because even though this was a very rare occurrence and a kind of a one-off, that doesn't make it something to not learn from. So 
that I mean, to me, this one was still important, and it's still it's, it's a good thing that they took a lot away from this and managed to change a lot of things. I can tell you that the airport here in Denver takes nothing lightly when it comes to safety and everything. Like they have massive teams devoted to statistics on things here at the airport, and they yeah. will fix anything right away. They are pretty good about that. So. I would hope so. Yeah, just saying. Since this is the airport I frequent the most. Yes, and since it's literally the third busiest in the world. That's a lot to have to deal with, so they got to be ready for it. Which is still an incredible statistic to me. It is unbelievable, and there is no reason that that number isn't going to go up. That's the crazier thing to me. I I don't want to have to do the ding-dong on the plane and be like, hey, I want to get off. Yeah, (laughs) I don't feel safe. I don't feel safe. (laughs) Stranger danger. So I just want to put it to the numbers. In 2008, Denver International handled 50 million total passengers. If you know anything about... Well, go ahead and finish your statistics. In 2021, Denver handled 59 million passengers. How many in 2019? In 2019, that was at 69 million passengers. Right. That's why that number still matters. Because the goal for this year and next is to beat that one. Oh, I don't want to beat that one. but, But all of the construction that they're doing right now is called Project 100 because they're aiming for 100 million. No. The buildings were not built to support more than 50 when they were built, and they have been for some time. And they hit 50 million in right. 2008. Right. So that's why they had to come up with Project 100. <laughs> this is something I am very acutely attuned to because I hear all about it all the time, and I hear all the different construction projects. I literally have like daily meetings from the airport that I could attend on this, and I choose not to because it becomes overwhelming and unnecessary. I don't need to know everything about every little thing changing, but there are some pertinent things. But they are going through so many massive changes with the expectation that they are going to beat that 100 million number. And then they're already thinking about what's next because they are planning to outdo that. They are aiming to be on a large scale, the busiest airport in the world. So 2019 was the busiest year for air traffic. The only two airports that exceeded 100 million passengers were Beijing and Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport. Makes sense, right? The only ones that consistently continue to beat us are Dallas-Fort Worth and Hartsfield. But Chicago, and any given day, is busier than us as well. So, O'Hare, that is. That's because O'Hare's freaking huge. But the and one an thing. absolute disaster. Right. But the one thing that we have that none of the rest of them do is space. Yes, so we, we do. So we will easily beat that number in the future because we have the means to do so and the airlines that want it. That is... The bottom line of that. And we are conveniently located in the middle of the country. A great place to get to either coast, Canada, Mexico, or further south. Right. Eventually they would love to be... And overseas. Right. Eventually they would love to be a world gateway. We are not a major international player, per se, on the international scale. Domestically, absolutely. (laughs) We have the largest domestic operation of any airport. But that's still... It's still crazy to me. I mean, we still have a big international operation, per se, but... That you partake in. Yes, that I do. Okay, that was Continental Flight 1404. Yes. I remembered it this time. Nice. Ta-da! It has a pretty catchy one, 1404. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate it. Keep doing that. That's an important thing to do. (laughs) Yes. That's how we keep running. That's right. So, if you want some more stuff to listen to, you can check out the Patreon. Because there's a lot of stuff on Patreon. (laughs) There is more stuff on Patreon than there is on the actual podcast itself. Miranda sounded very sarcastic. No, we're serious. No, No, really. Seriously, there's like a ridiculous amount of stuff on Patreon. Blooper reels, Miranda sods, post episodes, so much stuff. Our listenership does continue to go up every day. We are actually pretty darn up there, getting higher and higher all the time. And the only thing I would ask of you guys is to just keep spreading it, because that does help. It really does. Giving us a rating? Yep. Do that too. That also helps. Yep. Send us to your friends, your family. Yep. Your Subscribe. Enemies. Your significant other. Your That's enemies. Right. That's right. There you go. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. We do appreciate it. Thanks. Again, if you want to sign up for Ducks or the newsletter, all of that information is on the homepage of the website. And if you want to send us stories, because now we're looking for stories. We are looking for stories. We we're recorded, caught up. We recorded two whole listener episodes. We still had a few stories left that we couldn't put into another one because there just weren't enough. So now we have a deficit. We need more. Yep. So if you want to send us a story, it does not have to be aviation related. It just has to be interesting. Yes. <laughs> and we will read it. Yes. If you haven't listened to a listener story episode before, 
there are a lot of those too. It's a saga, my dear. It really is. Listen to them in order because there is some recurring trends. But I think they're really entertaining. I think oh, there are absolutely. some phenomenally entertaining. They're they make us laugh. They make us cry. Uh, they make me cry a lot, David. <laughs> David. Yeah, David's not the only one though. And they're just it's just good stuff. And it's it's fun to actually be able to interact with you guys and hear your stories and things. And I I just yeah I really like them. So even though they don't get as many listens as a normal episode, I want to continue them because I think they're worthwhile. Yeah. You want to hear a story about a, a cow getting hit by a shoe? Yeah, do it. That is in an episode. Somewhere. That is in there. N- you want to hear about a guy that lands naked people falling naked from the sky in a little league field with people on the field? Yes. That's that in also a story. A thing. There are Go check it out. <laughs> stories about submarines. There's stories about drownings. <laughs> I mean, near drownings. Trains. 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 We get stories about trains. Spooky, Spooky things. stories. Yeah. We get we get all sorts of stuff. It's really interesting. I do believe in one of the aviation stories. We went over all of the stories about Denver International Airport. Yes, yes. One the, of the lizard people. The lizard oh people. The, the lizard. Illuminati. Yeah, all those underground things. Nazis. Okay. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast, and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.